How are we doing, Shelter Cove? You doing good today? All right, confession time. Who's still got their Christmas tree up? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I thought we were the only ones left. All right, and I'm sure some of you will outlive all of this, too, as well. We, you know, it's funny. My wife and I, we, we are the ones who drive around our neighborhood and judge everybody that still has their lights off you know, for weeks after Christmas. And for some reason this year, we just can't seem to let go. We just, it's been so busy. It's very, very jolly in my house, you know, with the Christmas. I'm thinking about just putting a bag over it and waiting until next year. But in any case, all right. Hey, take a Bible, would you, and turn to Matthew 10. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We've got some that we'll loan you for, for today. And uh, we're going to be looking at something today that is very, very important, an important concept in the Christian church over the last few centuries. And this is a concept that defines the church. It has a direct impact on your growth as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk today about small group community. What it means to be a part of a small group, the importance of being in a small group. Some of you are already rolling your eyes. You're like, oh, did I pick the wrong day to come to church? We're always talking about getting people into these groups. What's the deal? Why do we got to be a part of a small group? You know. Now, if you're a new believer or a non-believer, you have no idea what I'm talking about. This is a foreign concept to you. If you've grown up in church, you remember what it was like to go to Sunday school Okay, the original small group in America. And uh, maybe you're a part of a group. Maybe you go to a Bible study on the weekend, or maybe you attend one of the classes that we offer here at the church. But when we talk about small groups, and we call them life groups at Shelter Cove, when we talk about life groups, we're talking about these small groups of believers from our church that gather together throughout the week in homes. They gather in homes. And for a lot of people, that's, that's something they struggle with, the idea, especially if you're new to the faith. You're like, what do we got to go to a home for? What happens when we get to the house? Is that where they sacrifice the chicken? What's going on? And I get the apprehension, okay, relational things are difficult for some folks. Some of you are not even sure you like the greet one another time. When we get up here, we say, all right, now turn and greet one another in the Lord. And you're just kind of like, <laughs> and you shake a hand and then you bust out the Purell and lather up. All right, I've, I've seen you, I've seen you. Uh, you know, relationship is hard. And I don't know why that is difficult for us in 21st century America. It could be that we're so connected to our technology that we have trouble connecting relationally, right? A lot of us have a thousand friends on Facebook, not one true friend in real life. And so that's what I want to talk about. What is this thing called relationship? What is this thing called community? What is God's design for it? for the believer. And so we're going to look at that today. I heard about a mega church that did a big small groups push. They were going to do a launch. They're going to, they said, on this date, come, and we're going, to, we're going to sign you up. We're going to launch small groups, so come, make sure you come to church. And the date came, and attendance dipped by 1,500 people. It was like they did a giving campaign. People were like, here, take my wallet. Just don't make me join a group, Okay. Listen, I want to put your mind at ease. You don't have to join a life group. Nobody's going to make you join a life group. We have no group police in the parking lot waiting to follow you home, okay? There's a name for forced relationships. It's called prison. Okay, that's not what we're trying. We're not trying to pair you up with Bubba who likes to cuddle. That is not the objective today. Let me just say this. When you are ready for relationships, when you're ready for community. We're ready for you. 
Okay? We got groups for you. We are going to challenge you. We are going to encourage you to take a step of faith because we believe that it's God's will. We believe that it's God's desire for you to connect with other Christians in this type of environment. And I'm going to give you three reasons why before we jump into our text. Why does God want you to be a part of a small group? Number one, so you can be cared for. So you can be cared for. Small groups exist to care. All right? And this is one of the problems with a, a large, large church. As it gets bigger, when somebody has an issue, a situation, when their marriage melts down, when their finances implode, when they just need somebody to pray with them, they don't know anybody. And nobody knows them. And the way that you are meant to be cared for is relationally. All right. Now, on the back of the seat in front of you, we've got these things called Cove cards. And on there, you can write your name. You can write a prayer request. And we commit as a staff to praying for you. All right. And we do. We gather every week. We all get a little strip of paper with a name and a prayer request. And we pray. But I'll be honest with you. Nine times out of ten, I don't know the person that I'm praying for. And I'll still pray for them. Okay, but let me ask you, don't you think that it's better for the person who is praying for you fervently, knows you, and is in relationship with you, and already is aware of the situation that you're encountering because they are walking through that with you, alongside of you? Isn't that God's design? See, you're not just a name in heaven, you're a person. And that is God's design for the church in the way that we take care of one another. And I don't know if you're going through a situation right now. If you're not, you're probably about to be. People are either coming out of it or going into it. That's just how it works. But we all are in need of care. Second reason God wants you to be in a small group is so you can grow. Is so you can grow. And not just in your relationship with other people, although that's fun. I I think it's fun to get together with folks that you love and that you care about and that uh, you have no agenda. You just want to hang out. You want to watch a football game or a movie or play a game, whatever. And I enjoy doing that. And I think our small groups all need to do that from time to time. But the, the ultimate purpose of a small group is so that you can grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you do that by meeting together, by studying the word together, by talking, and yes, laughing, but by, by fellowshipping and spending time in the word together so that you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we have all different types of groups here. Not every one of you is in the same place spiritually. You're all at different levels. And groups are at different levels. And a lot of our groups are discussion-based, sermon-based groups. On the flip side of your outline, there's a list of discussion questions that we offer to all of our life groups every week. And we encourage all of our groups to take those, and we write those questions in-house, and they take you a little deeper from the sermon that was given that weekend, and it's designed to help you take it to a new level and to, to experience a different facet of that topic or that text that you heard about from the platform. And we encourage all of our groups to give that a shot. At least try that out. But you know what? We don't, we don't have all of our groups that do that. Some of them do other things. And that's because the leaders have gauged and determined where their group is at and what they should be focusing on. And they know their group. And so whatever type of group that you're involved in, just know the ultimate purpose is that you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Third reason is this. Part of growth is serving. And God wants you to be in a small group so that you can serve him through the church. 
All right, some of you serve in other ways. You serve outside the church. Maybe you serve out in the community or you serve uh, with a parachurch uh, ministry or what have you. And those things are great. But God has given us this beautiful thing called the local church body. And you're a part of that. And he desires for you to get plugged into that and to serve one another because the Bible says that when the, the world looks at us, they know that we belong to him in that we have love for one another. And we serve one another. And as we serve one another, the world sees the authenticity of that relationship and they recognize that's missing in my life. And they want that. And they're brought into the body of Christ where they can experience the same benefits of that spiritual connection and relationship that we enjoy as believers. And the church is at its absolute best when it is small. Now, I'm not, I'm not knocking large churches. I obviously don't consider Shelter Cove a small church. What am I saying? I'm saying that the larger a church gets, it's incumbent upon that church to focus on relational things and to develop community between people. Because what's the purpose of the church? Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's right. Purpose of the church is to make disciples. Listen, discipleships, uh, discipleship happens in small groups. It does, okay? The large room is not a place that you can just subsist. It's not. Uh, you cannot become a disciple in the big room only. You need that kind of small group community. Now, you may be thinking, why can't you just talk and tell me this stuff and teach from the platform, and, and, and I'll take really good notes, Okay? And I will go home and I'm going to live out this thing called the Christian life and I'll come back next week and I'll just, we'll do it again. And I'll just come on the weekends and isn't, isn't that enough? Honestly, no. No, it's really not because you can't grow the way God intended you to grow in the big room. You just can't. Uh, we, we have determined that our measure of success in America in many of our churches is, is that we just fill the seats on the weekend. And so we're okay with not developing disciples as long as people are coming and packing out the crowd or packing out the big room. But this bigger is better thing is not a God thing. That's a man thing. Is that true? God's definition of success is our disciples being made, and that happens in small groups. If you only experience church on the weekends through these services, you're not experiencing the church as God intended it to be experienced in the New Testament. Small group culture is what makes us the church of the kingdom instead of the kingdom of the church, all right? And we believe that fully because our mission statement is reaching and raising authentic followers of Jesus, and that's why Pastor Jeremy sees value in promoting this kind of a community so that you guys can get connected and grow the way God intended for you to grow. So I wanna share something today in our text in Matthew 10. Jesus gives some instructions. He shares a sermon with his disciples, and he sends them out. And in Matthew 10, verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. We're gonna, there's more in this text. We're going to stop right there because that is the core of the instructions that Jesus gives his disciples, okay? And what I want you to see is this. 
He gives them these instructions, and they have very little time to process it. They have very little time to digest it, to make sense of it, to understand it. They just receive it, and they go. They're sent out to do it. And the point that I want to make here is this. We need to be in life groups. We need to be in small group community because listening to sermons is easy. Living them out is hard. That's in your notes. Listening to sermons is easy. Living them out is quite another matter. Can you relate to that? I could do a sermon on marriage up here. I could tell you about some precepts, about how to treat your spouse, how to honor the Lord with your marriage, and you might get all convicted. You might hug your spouse and start crying and say, we're going to love each other. We're going to do the dishes together. And, you know, and for like 40 minutes, you have the best marriage ever. And then you get in the car, and on the way home, you get in a fight. All right, can you relate? You don't have to admit that. Uh, I could do a message on tithing. And I've been the guy in the seats on giving, right? And the, Lord, our, I'm going to change. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pay down our debt. We're going to pay that visa bill down. We're going to get on top of our finances. We're going we're gonna to be frugal. We're going to pray over every expenditure. We're going to up our giving percentage. We're going to give to missions. We're going to do all this stuff. And then you get home. Car blows up, kid throws a ball through a window, medical bills, impulse buys near the register. Life, right? Listening to sermons is easy. Living them out is not easy. And that's why we need community to be able to navigate what we have heard in those sermons. And so the disciples get the instructions, go, heal, pray, announce the kingdom, and they go out and they try to do this stuff. How'd they do? Let's find out. Mark chapter 9. Turn to Mark 9. We're going to look at verse 14 and moving forward from there. We're going to see how they did. They go out. They end up getting in a fight. Not with each other, but with the very people that they're trying to heal and to minister to. They go out, try to do what Jesus tells them to do, and they fail. Can you relate to that? You just go out, you try to get her done, and it's like, nope. All right? How many of you come here and you hear something in the word and you go out and you try to do it and you, you mess up? How many of you do that? Huh? Okay, that's, that's, like, that's like 5%. The rest of you are like, I never try to do anything that you tell me to do from the platform. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Okay, Mark 9, verse 14. Jesus has been up on Mount Hermon with a couple disciples. They come down. They're reconnecting with the other disciples that are out doing what they were commissioned to do. And when they came to the disciples, verse 14, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Arguing. Okay, go, announce the kingdom, heal, cast out, cleanse, pray, arguing. Is that one of the commands that, no, but somehow Christians are just very, very good at that, aren't, aren't we? And so it says in verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now notice that none of the disciples answer. Okay, I'm a dad. If I go out here after the service and my boy is fighting and wrestling around with some other boys and I, I run up in my dad voice and I say, what is going on here? That was my dad voice. And uh, who do I want to hear from? I don't want to hear from the other kids. I'll tell you, Pastor Scott, Grayson is a sinner. Uh, if you're a parent, you want to hear from your child. Jesus wants to hear from the disciples, but they ain't saying a word. Mom's the word. They're embarrassed. 
they're in public, and they do not want to respond. Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him. One guy from the crowd, not a disciple. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Okay, if you're a new believer or a non-believer, this is a little weird right here. You're like, I heard you say that he told them to cast out demons. I thought that was a metaphor. He's got a what that does what? He has a spirit that makes him mute. You see, we believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We believe in angels. We believe in demons. Why? Because the Bible teaches about angels and demons. And as a Christian, you read the Bible at face value. You embrace spiritual reality. You embrace the supernatural. Okay? Jesus talked about it. He believed in it. He had encounters with spiritual creatures, and they're real. And so I'm asking you to open your mind to that as we look at this text, okay? And the dad says, and whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him down, and, it, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not able. Now, if you have a medical background, you may be thinking, well, I can tell you why they were not able. They're not doctors. And this is clearly an epileptic seizure. He's foaming at the mouth. He's grinding his teeth. He's rigid. That's epilepsy, right? Let me just say a couple things. In Jesus' day, whenever somebody had a medical issue or physical issue, it was automatically assumed to be a spiritual problem, okay? And they would look there first. Now, not everything that happens physically is a spiritual issue, obviously. And not every medical thing that happens is a spiritual issue. But today, we often assume that everything that happens that's physical just needs a pill. And we don't look at the spiritual at all. We just assume this is a medical thing, it's a chemical thing. And we are just as wrong as somebody that paints with the spiritual brush all the time. A lot of us Christians, sometimes we, we paint everything with a spiritual brush too. You know, we blame the devil for everything when sometimes it's like, no, you just make bad decisions. Take your foot off the gas, okay? You won't get a speeding ticket, Grandma. <laughs> but I want you to open your mind to the supernatural, uh, supernatural in this text. And this is not a sermon on spiritual warfare, and I'm not instructing you all to go out and start casting out demons, okay? The context is that Jesus is sending the disciples out to do something that he specifically intends for them to do, and they are not able to do it, and you can relate to that. You can relate. You hear biblical instructions, you commit to making it work and happen in your life, and you go out and you fall on your face. And the principle here is that this highlights our need for community because in your notes, church is where we learn about faith. The small group is where we work out faith. That's where we work it out. That's where we make sense of it. Life in community, we make sense of what we've learned in the big room and we apply it where possible. And this is where the application of what we've learned in the weekend takes place. When we surround ourselves with other believers who are in the same phase of life as us and they are all indwelled by the same Holy Spirit that lives in us and God uses them through the power of the Spirit in conjunction with their personalities, their uniqueness, their individuality, their perceptiveness, their, their, the way that they interpret the Scripture, and they shed light on things that haven't occurred to you, and you shed light on things that haven't occurred to them, and you grow together in community. That's God's design. Why do we have four Gospels? 
Why don't we just have one mega gospel? Because God in his wisdom saw fit to use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and in conjunction with the Holy Spirit that was inspiring them to write, he was utilizing their intellect, their gifts, their skills, their personalities, their life experiences to put pen to paper and to impart different perspectives on the same true story to our benefit. What a blessing. The wisdom of God and he has designed the small group to function in the same way. And we can go out, we can, we can even fall in community, okay? You go out and mess up while you're in community just like you can mess up on your own, but the difference is you mess up together. You fall together. And you learn together. And grow together. And you get up and you dust each other off. And probably the most important thing, you encourage one another. How many of you need encouragement? Man, everybody needs encouragement. I don't care how great a Christian is. Everyone needs encouragement. Even pastors, especially pastors. We can get really insecure. We need encouragement, just like everybody. The Apostle Paul needed encouragement. If you read Acts 19 and 20, you see Paul in Ephesus. And he's there and he preaches a sermon and a riot breaks out. And I'll admit secretly, I've always thought that would be really cool. You know, just I preach a sermon and somebody gets ticked and goes out and flips a car over, sets it on fire. Be kind of neat, you know. But it was traumatic, obviously. And he told them these gods that you're worshiping are no gods at all. And they got incensed and they packed out a stadium in Ephesus that I've actually been to. And, and they crammed in there in thousands of Ephesians chanting for Paul's death. And after the events, Acts tells us that Paul sent for the disciples and they encouraged one another. And then it says he travels through Macedonia. And in Acts 20, we read the list of guys that he has traveling with him. His, his traveling companions. And there's a guy named Sopater from Berea. And you got uh, uh, a couple of Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy. We know him. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. There's like seven guys. Sounds like a small group. And a pretty diverse one. And he models community. And community is modeled by the righteous all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. You know where community is first modeled in Scripture? In the very first chapter of the Bible. God the Father models community. In the beginning, God, Hebrew word Elohim, plural word. And he goes on and says, let us make man in our image. God is plural, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity is a beautiful picture of community and unity. Amen? Back to our text. Mark chapter 9. This dad comes up to Jesus. Jesus has happened upon the scene. Angry mob, sheepish disciples, exasperated father comes up, says, I brought my son to you. He's got a demon. They tried to cast it out. They couldn't do it. Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. He sounds frustrated, doesn't he? Who's he frustrated with? The disciples, not the crowd. He's like, fellas, I told you how to do this. I taught you how to do it. I've equipped you. I sent you out together and you haven't done it. Why? Because listening to sermons is easy. Living it out is hard. 
And so the father comes. They brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, notice it doesn't say, and when the epilepsy saw him, okay? Immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? When you go to the doctor with a condition or an issue, what's the first thing the doctor asks you? How long have you been experiencing this? That started with Jesus. He's the great physician. He invented that. He knows how to heal innately. He's the great healer. How long has this been happening? The father says, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can. Who's he talking to? Now Jesus gets a little frustrated with the dad. He says, if you can. And I love this. All things are possible. And I like to picture Jesus turning his head on this next phrase. For the one who believes, looking at the disciples. What's the problem? If you're a mature Christian, you will understand this. Why do we need to be in community with one another? Because in your notes, we believe, yet we don't believe. Is that true? Can you relate to that? It's okay to admit that. I know sometimes we're a little reluctant to admit that. Oh, no, I, I, I've always believed. You know? We believe and yet we don't believe. If you're a new believer, you may not quite fully understand that. Because new believers are so exciting. It's fun to be around a new believer because they're all like, go God, you know? All things are possible. Amen. New lease on life. They're excited. They haven't gotten beaten up by the devil yet, okay? (laughs) Satan's painting a big old target on them. They don't even know it. They haven't experienced this dual nature warfare that's gonna go on, right? And we get worn down, don't we? And the world may assume that all Christians just never, ever, ever, ever doubt, never, ever struggle, but we do, right? We struggle. And I'll say this, at least when a, when a Christian is open about their doubts, it's a little refreshing to me as a pastor because at least, at least they're being open, right? Because be honest, we're not the most real people at church. We put on our little Christian facade and we wear our faith on our sleeve and we try our best to look the part. And the disciples kind of make an example that they're out in public. They don't say a word. Okay, they're not being very open. And there's a principle here for small groups. In your notes, the smaller the crowd, the more comfortable people feel. Is that true? Now, some people feel more comfortable in a big crowd because they walk into the big room and they're like, oh yeah, I can disappear in here. Yeah, I'm just a face in the crowd. No expectations on me. I can just be one of many. Well, you're missing the point if you do that. Isn't that true? What's the point of church? To make disciples, right? If you disappear, you don't grow. And to be a disciple requires openness about your need, about your struggles. And you're not going to do that in the big room. You're not going to be open about your struggles in front of a lot of people. 
You're just not. This is one of four services. You're not going to come here on Sunday and be open about your innermost secrets and struggles with a chunk of greater North Modesto. It's just not going to happen. So look what happens here. Verse 24, and immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Watch this. Jesus says, all right, boys, I'm going to show you how it's done. He rebukes the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, lifted him up, and he arose. I want you to picture that scene. When we read scripture, you need to, you need to visualize it, especially a narrative, a story like that. You need to picture the, the people that are there. You got an angry mob. They're starting to quiet down. You got Jesus exuding this divine confidence. You've got the disciples. They're, they're, they're sheepish. They're, they're probably exhausted. They're sweating. They're, they're near tears. They're probably scraped up. And then you've got this boy writhing on the ground. And Jesus commands that demon and raises him up. And suddenly this young man is clear-eyed again. Now watch what happens in verse 28. After all this happens, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. Don't miss that. Privately. All right? Where's Jesus? He's back at the house now. Okay, we're done here. We're back at the house. Where are the disciples? With Jesus in the house. What are they doing? They're having a life group. They've kicked the shoes off. Been a long day. Got in a fight with some Pharisees. Saw a demon-possessed boy. Long day. Okay? If I almost get beat up by a priest and then I wrestle with the devil, that's a day. Know what I'm saying? So they're back at the house, and they ask Jesus, why could we not cast it out? How did they figure out what went wrong? In public? No, in private. They figured out privately. Okay? What have we said? We've said that the smaller the crowd, the more comfortable people feel. Here's your next principle for a small group. When we are comfortable... We can be more real with each other. Is that true? You married people. Let me ask you a question. Before you were married, when you were dating, okay, when you were getting ready to go out with your sweetie, how long did it take you to get ready? Like a year, right? Why? Because they really shouldn't call it dating. They should call it marketing. You know, like you come out, this is how I always look. Okay, now you've been married 10, 15, 20, 25, maybe more years. When you get ready to go out, how long does it take you to get ready now? Some of you guys are like, let's go. <laughs> Why? Because you're comfortable with each other. You've been in a small group called marriage for like a couple decades now, and you are secure with one another. There's not so much riding on this. You're like, I hope this goes well. You know, you're, you're comfortable. Now, guys, please, 
when you take your wife out, take a shower, all right? Throw some cologne on. Put a nice shirt on. She's worth it. All right? I just want to go on the record there, ladies. You're welcome. All right? You know what I mean, though. When we are around each other, we can get more real with each other if we are comfortable and we don't have to play church anymore and we don't have to pretend anymore. And we be open. And that's the problem with big churches is that there's so much pressure to pretend, to be something you're not, to be elusive about what's really going on, all right? Because we put on the mask and we go to church and we think we have to appear all spiritual, have everything together. And we get caught off guard and somebody comes up on a Sunday morning and they go, and how are you this fine Lord's Day? And you're like, Jesus Christ is in my heart. And in my soul, and in, in, in my family. And brethren, goest thou in, in the blessing of the countenance of the Lord and upon your visage. What? What are we doing? My prayer for you is that you get in a life group where somebody asks you, how are you doing? You're like, you know what? Not good. Really? What's going on? Here, sit down. Let's talk. And you can open up. And, and then they'll open the word. And say, all right, let's, let me show you something that God told me in my quiet time today. And you share. And they're not going to judge you because they love you. And they care about you. And they care what's going on in your world. And you do life together. That's our desire for you. And notice in this text, in public, none of the disciples are willing to answer Jesus' question. But they get in the house, in the small group community. It's not Jesus asking the question. You notice that? Who's asking the question? The disciples. How could we not cast it out? You see, the small group is where questions are asked. And it's safe. You can ask anything. I got a group for young adults on Wednesday nights. They got crazy questions. There's no question off the table. All right, and it's not because Scott has all the answers. I don't, and if I don't know, I'll tell him, I don't know. And sometimes they know the answer. They're like, well, what about what Jesus said in Matthew? And I'm like, yeah, that ex exactly. And we learn together, and I learn, and they learn. But we do it in community, and that's the way God designed us to be. Here's the deal. I can preach a message. Pastor Jeremy can get up here, Chad, Garth, whoever. There is no way that we are going to meet all of you, where you are spiritually. There's too many of you, okay? Only when you get in your community, your small group, where you can hash out the things of God and you can talk about stuff and you're with people who are doing life and they're in the same phase of life as you and you can relate and you can apply the principles to where you are. This is where I am as a dad, as a mom, as a grandparent, as an adult, a young adult, a teenager, a married person, a single person. God's design. Why couldn't we cast this demon out, they say. In verse 29, he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let me ask you a question. Was this a special demon? This kind cannot be driven out by anything. Were there are some demons that, that didn't require prayer? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, hey guys, listen. You can't command anything without my power. You can't command anything without my power. And prayer 
is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. And when you pray together, you are demonstrating collectively your dependence on me. Even when I'm no longer with you, you are showing where your power comes from and you can receive it in prayer. And that's a great principle for small groups is that you need in your group to allow time to pray together. You say, well, I pray on my own by myself every morning. That's great. Jesus did that too. But I'm telling you, there's something special that happens when God's people gather and they pray together. All throughout the scripture, you see the example of that. In Acts chapter 2, that early uh, band of believers called the church, on the day of Pentecost, they gathered, they crammed into that little room and they prayed together. And later, the Holy Spirit came down. He indwelled them. He empowered them. Those disciples went out on Pentecost. Peter preached. And 3,000 people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Later in Acts, we see James martyred. You see the, uh, uh, Peter is arrested by Herod and imprisoned. That little band of believers get together. They pray and Peter is supernaturally released from prison. At Antioch, the church gathered in a home because that, they were small, they fit in a home. They didn't have a building like this. And they gathered together and they committed to fasting and to prayer. And it was in that context that the Holy Spirit spoke to the whole group and said, send out Paul and Barnabas to the mission field. Told them that when they prayed together. And they went out. And if they hadn't, you and I wouldn't be here today. Started with a small group. And in the Western world, we've had over the last couple of centuries these things called great awakenings, these spiritual revivals that have swept around the world where countless people put their faith in Jesus Christ and turned to him, and it all started with small groups of people committing to pray for a sustained move of God and revival. God uses prayer. And in your notes, when we pray together, we unleash the power of God. You show me a group, a small group that spends no time in prayer, I'll show you a worthless group. You gotta, you gotta leave time for prayer. Why are we so afraid of this concept? The small group. Why are we tentative? Some of you, it might be something simple, something very personal. Maybe, maybe you say, you know what, I, I'm not a very good reader. I don't read well, and I'd be embarrassed. If somebody asked me to read in public, I I, I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be so embarrassed. You know what? We encourage our leaders, don't ask people to do stuff they're not comfortable doing. Always check. You don't have to do anything that you would be embarrassed to do in a group, okay? So you need to put that pressure right out of your mind. You may say, well, I don't know that much about the Bible, okay? I'm no great theologian. I don't belong in a group like that. Hey, we're not trying to make these little groups of, of, of little biblical scholars, All right? What's the point of a group? It's that you grow. You grow and you ask questions and you begin to mature as a believer and we're all in this together. And maybe you say, well, I've got kids and I'd like to be in a small group, but I can't afford a child. I can't afford a babysitter every week. Well, I can relate to that. I got four kids myself. And that's why we're going to start offering childcare on Thursday nights for people who want to be in a life group. 
We just want to be a blessing to you. We want you to experience the type of community that was the only, only expression of the church for the first centuries of its existence. In Acts, the early church is described in this way. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And in epistle after epistle, Paul writes something like this. And greet also the church, the church that meets at their house. My final question to you today is this. Are you ready? Are you ready to experience New Testament Christianity? This is what God intended to be in relationship and to grow in this way. Don't miss out on what he has for you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of fellowship. You've given us so many, many gifts. God, you gave us life. You gave us breath. You gave us creation to enjoy. You gave us Jesus and salvation and grace so that we could have a hope. But God, you didn't save us and then just leave us here to wander and to find our way on our own and to figure things out for ourselves. No, you gave us one another. You gave us the gift of community. And God, we thank you that there are others who are filled with the same spirit through which we can know true unity and connect with and be sharpened by, and we can make each other better by walking together. And I pray for this church that they would know the value of that and that they would experience the abundance of all you have to offer in this wonderful thing called the Christian life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.